0: Ray Steadman tells the story of a couple of Englishmen who were riding a commuter train to London, and they saw this uh, distinguished-looking gentleman sitting in the same coach across the aisle, and uh, one of the uh, friends turns to his companion and says, You know, I think that guy is the Archbishop of Canterbury. The guy says, No, I don't think so. He says, No, I really think he is. No, I don't think so. So the first man says to his friend, Look, I'll bet you that that's the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the guy says, Okay, You're on. And so he gets up, and he goes across the coach, and he interrupts this man who's reading the newspaper and says, Excuse me, are you the Archbishop of Canterbury? And the guy immediately rips off a round oath, begins to swear, and tells him to get lost. So the guy returns to his uh, seatmate and says, Well, the bet's off. There's no way to find out. He won't tell me. (laughs) You know, and the... You know, and the point of the story is, quite simply, that that being a Christian ought to make a difference in the way we live life, that if there is no uh, discernible difference in the way we live life as believers from the way we lived life before, then uh, uh, we're fooling ourselves. Uh, Some of you know uh, Jim and Judy Mechanic and are aware that a few years ago they bought a little house over on Mountain View Drive, which was uh, a fixer-upper, peeling... uh, cracked paint on the exterior and scruffed, beat-up floors on the interior, needing a paint job on the inside. And when Jim and Judy moved into that home, they immediately began to go to work on some of these things. gave the exterior a new paint job, began to trim the hedges and and, uh, mow the lawn and rake the leaves and uh, polished and buffed the floors on the inside of the house and repainted the inside of the house. And before long, that was a completely different house and the neighbors who lived around them even if they had never met Jim and Judy and had never even seen them would know that there was a new tenant in that uh, in that house know that there was a new landlord now James is saying the same thing about uh, about our Christian life that there ought to be some discernible evidence in our and our lives that there's a new landlord that there's a new master of the house that there's a uh, some changes that are being, being made in life that are a reflection of his work in us. Now it seems that the greatest area in which we struggle in making these uh, transformations is in the area of relationships, and that's what James has been focusing on in his little book. A lot of us are like uh, Lucy who uh, said, I love uh, humanity, it's people I can't stand. That <laughs> it's uh, always people who seem to give us the greatest uh, trouble in life. Well, in this little passage we're going to look at today in James chapter 3, starting with verse 13 and just going to the end of the chapter, we'll just look at six verses this morning. What James does for us in this third chapter, the last paragraph, is explain to us basically why relationships break down. Why in in homes and uh, on job sites and in offices... And even among uh, countries and international relations, there's disorder and disharmony and tension and conflict. Puts his finger right on the basic source of all disorder and instability in human relationships and also gives us some idea of how we can latch on to resources to deal with these conflicts and deal with these problems. He begins with a question in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Evidently, there were a number of men in this church to whom James was writing who uh, fancied that they themselves were wise men and were understanding men. They were wise, that is, they perceived themselves as uh, mature, and they perceived themselves as understanding, that is, knowledgeable in the truth of God, knowledgeable in the Scriptures. Now, uh, if you uh, perceive yourself that way this morning, then James has a little test for you to apply to yourself. And if you know you're not wise and understanding, but want to be, then James points the way to us this morning. Now, James answers his own question in the rest of verse 13. He says, Let him, that is the man who claims that he is wise and understanding, let him show or prove... By his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. So James says the truest test of whether a man is mature and knowledgeable is uh, his behavior. The best way to uh, evaluate whether a man is truly mature and knowledgeable in the things of God is to evaluate not what he does on Sunday morning or the way he behaves on Sunday morning, but the way he behaves on Monday through Saturday. That's the truest test. Uh, James' word for behavior is just a general term for way of life, for conduct, or general pattern of life. You can tell the most about a man by watching the way he relates to people in his home and in his office and on the job site, much more than you can tell by the way he functions on Sunday morning when everybody's expected to be nice and kind and friendly. One of the great errors, I think, that we make in the evangelical church is that we too often have equated knowledge with maturity, that we seem to instinctively attribute the greatest maturity to those who know the greatest amounts of Scripture. But what James has been saying all through this little book of his is that it is not uh, truth known that sets you free or causes you to grow to maturity, but it's truth done that sets you free. It's not how much of the scripture you have mastered, but how much the scriptures have mastered you that really counts. Now, what James focuses on in terms of behavior is the quality of gentleness he says the most distinctive mark of the man or woman who is mature in his or her relationships is that his, his relationships are marked by a quality of gentleness, that the quality that repeatedly surfaces in his relationships with people is this quality of gentleness. Now, gentleness, quite simply, is a willingness to yield our rights to one another, the gentleman is the man who is willing to yield his rights for the sake of others, willing to set aside his plans and his goals and his ambitions and his desires for the sake of those around him. Many people think that gentleness is a manifestation of weakness. This word is also translated in a number of places in the scripture with the word meekness which in our way of thinking is generally uh, sort of associated with spinelessness and a lack of a backbone, someone who was too weak to assert his own will. But the Greeks didn't understand it this way. They used this word gentle to describe a uh, horse, a wild horse, which had been tamed and was subject to the, to the will and the control of its jockey. So it became a picture then of strength, great strength, but strength which was under control, strength which had been tamed. John Barnes was uh, telling our growth group one night uh, about uh, a visit he'd paid up to his uh, little ranch in Garden Valley and was teaching Sarah, his uh, young daughter who was five or six at the time, how to ride a horse. And Sarah is just this little tiny frail girl, and and John set her on this uh, 1,200-pound steed. And yet, because this horse, as strong as he was, had been tamed, he was responsive to the will of this little uh, girl who was sitting on his back. Now, the Greeks refer to that as gentleness. Uh, That's strength, that's power, but it's under control. Now, what James is saying to us here is that that is the truest mark of maturity in relationships, this gentleness, this willingness to yield our rights Mm -hmm. to those around us and for their sake. The clearest picture of this gentleness in action, I believe, is uh, the Lord going to the cross. Peter points out in 1 Peter 2 that as Jesus went to the cross, he was an innocent sufferer. He went to the cross on uh, trumped-up charges, and he wasn't simply uh, going to spend uh, 20 or 30 days in county jail, but he was going to lose his life on the basis of these trumped-up charges. And as he made his way to the cross, he was spit at and mocked and called names and taunted and humiliated. And what Peter says about Jesus is that while being reviled, that is, while being verbally abused, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats. If you stop for a minute and think about the sorts of threats that uh, Jesus could legitimately have uh, returned in that circumstance, it becomes even more impressive. And then Peter goes on to say that he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That as Jesus approached that uh, situation of mistreatment with a spirit of gentleness, he was willing to trust God to protect and preserve the rights that God wanted to preserve and protect. He was willing to allow God to fight those battles for him. Now there's probably no point at which the... Gospel cuts across the thinking of the world more directly than at this very point. Because the thinking of the world is that the way you get ahead in life is by asserting yourself, by insisting on your rights, by standing up for your rights, by making your voice heard, uh, that no one else is going to stick up for you, and so you'd better see to it that you stand up for your rights and assert yourself. Over the last several years, as I've just uh, scanned the bestseller list, I've noticed that uh, two of the books that uh, uh, hit the top of the charts over the last two or three years were books on this very subject, one entitled Winning Through Intimidation and another one called uh, Looking Out for Number One. I understand there's a sequel coming out for people with an inferiority complex called Looking Out for Number Two, so you (laughs) might, uh, might be watching the bookstore for that. But that's the, uh, that's the thinking and the philosophy of the world, that you, you get ahead, you get to where you want to be by self-assertiveness and by aggressiveness, by claiming what's, what's rightfully yours, and by insisting that you be treated fairly. And I've often thought that if Jesus had uh, phoned in a radio psychologist on his way to the cross and said, what do you think I ought to do? I'm innocent, I've done nothing wrong, and yet this is the way I'm being treated that the, I'm sure the average uh, counsel would have been, well, look, uh, I know the sort of power you have. Uh, there's no need for you to put up with this uh, sort of treatment. It's time to call a halt to this and stand up and be counted and, and use your power to, to uh, stop the kind of mistreatment that you're receiving. But Jesus, because he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously, was willing to yield his rights to be treated fairly and justly in that circumstance for our... For our sake. Now, James goes on to develop his argument in verses 14 through 18 by contrasting these two types of wisdom. And he contrasts them in three ways. He first contrasts them uh, in the origin or the source of these two kinds of wisdom. There's an earthly wisdom, he says, which he contrasts with a heavenly wisdom. He contrasts them in character. The basic character of the worldly wisdom is self assertiveness. The basic character of heavenly wisdom is gentleness. And then he contrasts them in the effect they have on relationships. The effect of worldly wisdom is disorder. The effect of heavenly wisdom is peace. He discusses worldly wisdom, first of all, in verses 14 to 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. So James first of all begins by discussing the character of earthly wisdom. And he identifies two uh, marks of earthly wisdom. The first is jealousy, and the second is uh, selfishness. These are the earmarks, James says, of, the, uh, of worldly thinking. This is true worldliness. You know, it's easy for us to identify uh, worldliness in terms of certain activities, smoking, drinking, gambling, and so forth. But the scriptures are always more profound than that. They go to the to issues of the heart, and what James says true worldliness consists of is uh, jealousy and ambition, and selfish ambition. Now James says these take their root in the in the heart of man, where they can't be seen. You can detect them by the way they express themselves, but they're they're in they're tucked away in the human heart. And I think it's. Uh, Uh, good for us to take this little opportunity, as we study James' paragraph, to sort of run a quick uh, self-examination to ask ourselves, what uh, are these things lurking in our hearts? Uh, Is is jealousy of others present in our hearts? Uh, As we look at the way we handle ourselves in in home and at work, do we see a selfishness that's, that's present there? We pee when we when we don't get our own way, do we get upset and angry when our plans are ignored or frustrated? Uh, are, are there those that we are, are jealous of at uh, work or jealous of the sort of success that they have in business? Uh, are we jealous of the sort of wardrobe that others possess or the sort of material possessions that they're able to afford or the size of the home that they live in? Are we envious of others for the... Uh, kind of uh, personality that they have or the gifts that God has given them in ministry Uh, are we jealous of the sort of status they seem to have in the eyes of others or the reputation that others have given them well James says if these things are present if this jealousy is present that the the source of this is earthly and it leads eventually to disorder it's good to ask ourselves about selfishness Uh, uh, our husbands being selfish we need to ask ourselves these questions continually. Am I being selfish in the way I'm spending my, my free time, my discretionary time? Do I see that as time which is there simply and only to be used for my purposes and my, and my pleasures? Now, James goes on here to identify the origin of this in verse 15. He says this wisdom, this uh, jealousy or selfishness, has uh, its source in the earth and in nature and in demons these are our old enemies the world the flesh and the devil james says that this wisdom is uh, earthly in origin that is it, it's the best that the best thinking that men apart from god can come up with if you get intelligent well educated people together Uh, The kind of thinking that they will come up with will be thinking which justifies jealousy and selfishness. Uh, The best educated minds of our generation tell us that the way to get ahead in life is through self-assertiveness and through aggressiveness. James also says that this wisdom is natural. Now, what he means by that is that it comes easy to us, that this is a second nature for us to be uh, jealous and uh, selfish people, that we are, we're born this way. This is what uh, theologians refer to as the doctrine of original sin, that when, when we come into the world, we come into the world with this basic twist toward uh, self-centeredness and, and envy, that we're born this way. Uh, every, uh, I think every parent in this room can bear ample testimony to this. I think the doctrine of original sin is the easiest doctrine in all of the scriptures to prove, because all you have to do to prove that this is true is to ask yourself the simple question, what do you have to teach children? Do you have to teach children to be bad? No, all of our efforts as parents are directed toward teaching our children to be good. Well, why is that true? Because their basic bent, the basic twist of their humanity, is toward self-centeredness and toward the evil. If you uh, ever question this, I invite you to take a tour of duty in the uh, nursery at some point, and uh, you will see uh, graphically demonstrated the uh, results of selfishness and jealousy in the human heart. I have a little uh, 19-month-old daughter who uh, uh, reminds me of this basic truth every day. A little angel, but there are times when she can be a little savage, and nobody taught her to be that way. That's uh, simply the nature that she inherited from her father. (laughs) (laughs) Last time I was in the uh, nursery, I was basically uh, hired muscle. As soon as I walked in the door, the other helpers... uh, had me uh, sort of uh, play guardian angel over a couple of, uh, couple of the kids in there who were a little bigger than the rest and used to kind of taking toys from others and generally mauling people. And so I just kind of tracked them around for the whole time and pulled them off of other kids and, <laughs> and uh, made them give toys back. And, you know, you ask yourself the question, who taught them to behave that way? Well, no one did. That's, uh, that's, that's natural. And James says that this kind of wisdom comes easy to us. It's natural. It's, it's uh, second nature to us. I was at the Red Lion not too long ago uh, doing some studying there in the coffee shop, and I was uh, uh, interrupted by this distraction over by the registration desk, and I looked over there, and there was a man who was very well-dressed, three-piece suit, probably in his late 40s, obviously uh, very successful and prosperous. And as he was carrying on a discussion with the desk clerk and getting increasingly heated, and from my vantage point, clear across the lobby of the uh, Red Lion Riverside, I was probably 75 feet away, I could hear every word that this man was saying, and evidently his uh, reservation had been botched up, and uh, he was extremely uh, upset about this. He was irate and uh, began to throw what amounted to an adult-sized temper tantrum. He got so angry that he smashed his fist on a little a little, uh, 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 little display case there and actually cut his hand and wound up having to get some stitches in his hand. But the thing, that, uh, the thing that occurred to me is that here's a man who is 48 years old and he acts just like my 19-month-old daughter when he doesn't get his way. You know, here's a man who's successful, prosperous, but has not grown uh, one yard toward personal maturity. So this is natural, comes easy. And then James says finally that it is demonic in origin, that this actually comes from from the pit of hell. This is one instance of spiritual warfare in life, that these, this jealousy and this selfishness originate with our enemy. We have a plum tree out in our front yard, and it's a pretty tree, but the fruit it produces is very bitter, and very uh, tart and it always will that's the nature of that that plum tree to produce a tart and bitter fruit and no amount of doctoring or or changing is going to ever get that tree to produce good fruit now James says that's the way human nature is that it will always produce uh, sour bitter fruit now in verse 16 he tells us the way in which we can know that the source of this wisdom he is uh, demonic, and he says you can tell by the effect it has in relationships that where jealousy and selfishness exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. That the basic uh, evidence that jealousy and selfishness are at work among us is when there is disorder in our human relationships, when there is unrest, instability, or there is tension and conflict among people. So if those qualities are present in, in my home or in my office, then it's an evidence that uh, Satan is at work sowing seeds of jealousy and selfishness, which eventually issue in disorder. This is why so many uh, marriages uh, head for divorce, is that marriages are basically a union of two people who by nature are jealous and selfish. And eventually, they will, it, this jealousy and this selfishness will, will break out and manifestations of disorder and unrest. This is uh, the word that political writers of the day use to describe uh, political anarchy or insurrections. And James is putting his finger on here on the basic explanation for unrest in the world. This is why uh, Lebanon is at a boiling point and why things have heated up in Central America and why uh, things are, uh, are out of order in Grenada. It's because people are jealous and selfish and wherever these things are present they eventually break forth in disorder this is why the things that the the UN and and our Congress do as good and as right and as helpful as they are are never going to address this problem because until the issue of jealousy and selfishness in the heart is dealt with there will be no uh, cure for disorder that they'll simply be trying to uh, to control the symptoms, but will be able in no way to attack the disease itself. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, I think we ought never, as Christians, allow differences of political philosophy to divide us, because the scriptures clearly teach us that uh, education and legislation are only addressed to uh, reducing or controlling symptoms. They do not address the underlying cause. Now, James has some good news for us in this uh, section, fortunately, in verses 17 and 18, where he contrasts this earthly wisdom with heavenly wisdom. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness. Is sown in peace by those who make peace. James describes its uh, origin, first of all, in verse 15 or verse uh, 17 as the wisdom which comes from above. That is, this is wisdom which is heavenly and divine in origin. Then he describes its character. First of all, the wisdom from above is pure. That is, there is a commitment above all to personal righteousness and integrity and purity. And then the wisdom from above is peaceable. That is, the, uh, the heavenly wisdom uh, makes a man someone who is easy to get along with, who is a peaceful man, not the quarrelsome, but peaceful, not argumentative, but one who stops arguments rather than, than starts them. And someone who acts as a peacemaker in his relationships, drawing people together. I think the order is important here. Uh, First, purity, and then peaceableness. Heavenly wisdom is not willing to, to compromise personal integrity or righteousness for the sake of peace. It's always that order. Purity, and then peace. The heavenly wisdom is gentle, James says. This is a different Greek word than the word in verse 13, but the meaning is basically the same. The gentle man is the one who is willing to yield his rights for the sake of others. It's also reasonable, James says. This word literally means uh, that heavenly wisdom is willing to be persuaded, that the man or woman who's characterized by heavenly wisdom is not someone who is so stubborn and and close-minded and dogmatic that they're unwilling to consider new information and new points of view and adjust uh, one's opinions if evidence warrants. It's also full of mercy and good fruits that heavenly wisdom has a compassion for people in in their need when they're afflicted and miserable. And not only a sense of compassion and pity, but full of good fruits. That is, heavenly wisdom actually takes steps to relieve this sort of suffering. It's unwavering. I think in this context what James means by unwavering is that it's it's unwavering in the way it, it treats people, that heavenly wisdom is by nature impartial. Uh, David's already touched on this in teaching on chapter 2, that uh, heavenly wisdom doesn't gravitate simply toward people who are like me or who are educated, sophisticated, wealthy, but has the same concern, the same love, the same impartiality for all men, whatever their social status. And lastly, it's without hypocrisy. Uh, As many of you know, the the word hypocrisy literally means to speak from under a mask. Actors in the early Greek stage would always wear masks when they performed on stage, and they would... uh, carry out their roles, speaking their parts from beneath these masks. And it became then a picture for someone who uh, appears to be something or someone different than he actually is. James says, heavenly wisdom is utterly without hypocrisy, that that what you see is what you get, that there are no uh, hidden secrets, that what people observe and see about us is exactly what we are. We're not a different person in public than we are in private. And then lastly, James discusses the effect that this heavenly wisdom has, which is heavenly in source and is characterized by gentleness. It says, The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. As the, the long-range effect of heavenly wisdom in relationships is that it draws people together, that uh, heavenly wisdom is a peacemaker, and uh, that those who make peace sow a seed, James says, which bears a harvest of righteousness. That when someone acts as a peacemaker, acts as a peaceable man, that he sows in that act a seed which bears a harvest of righteousness. Uh, Debbie and I illustrate this over and over again in our marriage. If one of us is a little testy or a little peevish, says something a little snappy or short, And the other person responds with gentleness and uh, with a word of encouragement, uh, with a word of of, uh, consolation, then uh, it affects the way the other person responds. Soon that peevishness and that testiness is dropped and that person begins to act righteously. Uh, Both people respond peevishly and testily, then the relationship at that point degenerates into disorder. But if someone will sow a a peaceful or peaceable word or a peaceful or peaceable act, soon others around them begin to act righteously. You sow a seed which bears a harvest of righteousness. Well, the question that obviously we need to ask is where do we get this uh, sort of wisdom? James has said it's heavenly in origin, but how uh, how do we get this wisdom into our lives? Well, we've already discussed this back in chapter one. Remember when David taught in chapter 1, verse 5, James says that uh, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if I look at uh, my life, and I see that there's some lack in my life of the heavenly wisdom that James has described here then James says that the way we get this heavenly wisdom into life is simply to ask for it. If there's a lack of purity in my life, if there's a struggle in my life with some particular sin which seems to control me, then James says the solution to that is to ask God for it. You don't need to read another book or attend another seminar or screw up your self-will. You get that purity by asking God for it who gives to all men generously and without reproach. That is, he dispenses all of the purity that we need and he does it without reproach. He never gets upset with us because we have to come back to him with the same need over and over again. If we lack peaceableness in life, if we see that our tendency is to be argumentative and quarrelsome, how do we become peaceful, peaceable men and women? Well... By asking God for it. That he loves to generously give to us a peaceable spirit. And he gives us to us without reproach. He never gets upset with us because our nature is to be quarrelsome. But he always gives to us generously the peaceableness that we need. If I find that it's difficult for me to yield my rights, and when I have certain plans and uh, certain designs, and I find it's almost impossible for me to let go of those things without anger or bitterness... James says, ask of God who gives a gentle spirit to all men, generously and without reproach. Uh, If I see that I tend to be stubborn and dogmatic and close-minded, usually uh, other people are a better source of this judgment than we are, but if I see myself that way, then ask God who gives to all men a reasonable spirit, a spirit which is willing to be persuaded and is flexible and, and compliant. So James is pointing out to us here is that any lack of this sort of heavenly wisdom that uh, we sense in life, we simply need to ask God for it. And as David pointed out, the one condition is that we really must want it. James says we must ask in faith without any doubting. That is, we must be convinced that that spirit of purity, that spirit of gentleness, that spirit of peaceableness is something that we really want. And if it is, then God will gladly... And generously and without reproach, give it to us. I often think of my uh, grandmother when I read this section. When I was uh, young and would visit her on vacation, she would always bring home some little surprise for me and for my sister. And the way she gave it to us is she'd always say, uh, hold out your hands and close your eyes, and I'll give you something to make you wise. Now, James says that's the way God deals with us. All he says that we have to do is simply hold out our hands and ask God for the wisdom. And he gives us what we need to make us wise. Jesus said in uh, one of the Gospels that he who is with me gathers, he who is not with me scatters. Uh, That the man who is with me is someone who draws people together. That his impact on others around him is to draw them together to create harmony and peace. The man who is not with me scatters, that his his, his effect on people is increasing conflict and disorder and unrest. I think that's a good question to ask ourselves this morning, is what, uh, what sort of impact or effect am I having on the lives of people around me? Am I one who is gathering or one who is scattering? And the encouraging word from James' letter to us this morning is that we can be people who gather, who draw together, who bind people together in harmony if we simply ask God, for the wisdom that we need. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for these uh, words that James has for us this morning, challenging words asking us to examine our hearts for jealousy and selfishness. We pray, Lord, as we uh, look into our hearts at this point, that you would make us uh, willing to acknowledge the presence of these poisons in our heart if they're there to honestly recognize them, confess them. We thank you that what you offer to us is, in contrast to this demonic wisdom, is a heavenly wisdom, which makes us pure and peaceable and gentle. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, plant this uh, seed of peace and gentleness in each heart. We ask that this week, as we live with our families, as we work with co-workers, as we relate to bosses and employees and to friends and neighbors, that you would cause the effect that our lives have on others to be one of gathering, of bringing together, promoting harmony. I ask you to purge from us any seeds of envy or selfishness which create disorder. Make us people who are characterized as gentle, peaceable, and peacemakers, cause us this week to sow seeds in peace which bear a harvest of righteousness. We thank you for your availability to us, for your promise to us of all of your wisdom, generously and without reproach. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.